Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday the 7th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thanks for joining us. Well, Emily, fresh from our Cambridge Literary Festival appearance, it's good to be back to a regular episode, a lot to discuss. How is Washington at the moment? Uh, Washington is all right. We're supposed to get the, you know, the, like the once in a generation or once in several years cicada storm. Uh, so we're, we're preparing ourselves for that. How is Berlin? What, what, what kind of storm is that? Is that a cicada storm? It's, it's insects descend on, ah. like literal insects. I, I don't mean this metaphorically, okay. uh, defend on, just, just uh, descend on the city. A, a, a plague of locusts, almost. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, Berlin has not got anything quite as exciting than that, although it has got sleet in early May, which in its own way is uh, a, a plague on us all. But anyway, um, should we quickly go through our moments of the week before we introduce our guest? Yes, let's. Um, my moment of the week is that Joe Biden announced that he would raise the refugee cap from 15,000 to 62,500. Um, this is both a reinstatement of an earlier promise and also a flip-flop in that several weeks ago or a few weeks ago, he had said that he would be keeping it at Trump's um, 15,000, which just to give listeners a sense of how small that is. If I don't know if you're American, if you know Oriole Stadium, that's Oriole Stadium at half capacity. Like 15,000 people to take in re- as refugees from around the world is is next to nothing. So after much public pushback, uh, he has said that he will raise it to uh, 62,500, 62, which I think is significant, both because it suggests that he actually is undoing some of Trump's immigration policies, and also because it demonstrates, to my mind at least, that this administration is willing to listen to some public outcry, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. And what is your moment of the week? Mine actually also has to do with President Biden. Um, we'll be getting on to other parts of the world shortly. But I think I really have to uh, note the fact that um, the Biden administration on Wednesday, through its support behind waiving intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines. And this is an about turn by the US administration that had previously said it didn't support this. Um, but there's been a major international campaign, including um, a number of Democratic uh, lawmakers in the US, as well as various um, leaders and former leaders from elsewhere in the world. This has, I think, originally been spearheaded by the governments of India and South Africa, but the, the campaign has, has sort of grown over the last weeks. Um, and I 
think that it's partly been influenced by the the horrific scenes in India at the moment and just this sense that the the pandemic is shifting its sort of center of gravity towards the global south and that there are just such obvious uh, inequities being exposed by that. So I think it's interesting. We'll have to see which other countries follow suit um, and also what sort of effect it has. Obviously, the intellectual property side isn't the only part of the getting vaccine to the world's poor story. Uh, you also have to think about expertise, manufacturing capacity and so forth. But it certainly seems to have been generally treated as a as a step forward and I think one to watch in the next few weeks as well. So with that, why don't you introduce our guest and our main conversation? We are delighted to have as our guest this week, Mukulika Banerjee. She is an associate professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics and also the author of a forthcoming book based on 15 years of research of West Bengal's politics. Mukulika, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. You know, obviously we are going to speak about West Bengal's election in just a moment, but we did not want to have a discussion about India without acknowledging and discussing um, the reality of, of COVID there. But could you maybe give us a sense of the, the state of things in India and and how it got to this point? Thank you. Yes, it's, it's a complete uh, man-made disaster. The whole world has been uh, tackling this pandemic for over a year, as indeed has India. But currently, the current scenario in, in India, where uh, people are dying at an alarming rate, is not so much because of uh, COVID-19, not so much because they are uh, ill with the virus, but because basic medical supplies of oxygen and drugs and steroids, and even paracetamol is running out. So people can't get hold of the basic supplies uh, to stay alive. And the cries for help that are uh, Everywhere on social media, Twitter has become basically a helpline for anyone looking to save the lives of their loved ones. And these are, of course, people with access to social media and Twitter uh, is because of enormous complacency on uh, behalf of the government. It's worth uh, going a few steps back to realize that the reason why at the end of January, in Davos, uh, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi declared that India had saved the world from uh, disaster, from the pandemic, uh, a very tall claim to have uh, made rather early on. Um, At that point, uh, two indicators of the pandemic, which we've all learned to observe, one is the doubling time of the virus, uh, which we wanted to be as high as possible, Um, that was doing pretty well. So by the 11th of February, soon after Prime Minister Modi's grand declaration at Davos, uh, it had reached a peak of about 710 days. But then from soon after that, uh, the doubling time began to shrink. So it was 522 days by the end of February. And by the end of March, it was 139 days. When we began to see the disaster unfold in April, and when I say disaster, you'd be hard-pressed to find an Indian anywhere in any corner of the globe today who is not affected directly by this, somebody they know closely, their neighbors, friends, relatives, 
uh, close family uh, have all experienced death, loss, and loss at, uh, for needless reasons. This was entirely avoidable. The second indicator is uh, the TPR, the test positivity ratio, which you want it to be as low as possible. So the WHO says that about a 5% TPR means that we are controlling the virus. On the 3rd of May, a few days ago, India's TPR is 21.5%. Now, again, this is uh, due to a number of factors. I'm happy to go over them if you, if you want. Uh, but when I say it is a man-made disaster, it means that decisions that were taken from the end of January onwards, and indeed before that, uh, have been completely filled with hubris and complacency. Uh, which has caused the current situation. One thing I wanted to ask on that point is you say it was a man-made uh, disaster and the the examples of that complacency are very prominent ones. You know, the way that people were encouraged to go to religious festivals, the way that major political rallies took place, even when the numbers were starting to get bad. So the fact that this has been managed irresponsibly by Narendra Modi's government, I think, is pretty plain to see. But how how widespread was that? I mean, was there a broad social sense of complacency, maybe encouraged by Modi, uh, but, but, but going beyond his government? Did people think India is somehow exceptionalist, India doesn't need to take the same precautions as, as others, this can't happen here. How would you see the division in, in, in the division in the perhaps the, the blame even for that response, for that complacency between the government and society? As you know, one thing that all of us have learned wherever we live, um, and I've certainly seen this uh, in the UK, is that a public health crisis requires political leadership, right? So people always want to carry on their lives as if nothing has happened. They want to return to normalcy. Um, And this is a virus that in fact mitigates against the most human impulses. You want to get together with friends, you want to celebrate, you want to see your loved ones and so on. And this virus and this pandemic requires you to do something which is very abnormal, which is to live in a bubble of your own, uh, isolated in your homes, not go out, not get exercise, not celebrate, and so on. And which is why, if there was a time when leadership was required, this is it in a public health crisis. And every every country has seen this. You know, The reason why we talk about New Zealand is because uh, the prime minister got the messaging right. The reason why Trump lost the election in the US was because he fail to provide that leadership. So in India, it is, yes, of course, people were behaving in a complacent fashion, but that was partly because they were being constantly told both domestically and internationally, as I uh, referred to that Davos uh, declaration, was that we had conquered this. It was fine. They could go back to normal lives. And in fact, with the religious gatherings that you um, that you referred to, the, to take just one example, in Uttarakhand, the, the Indian state where the Kumbh Mela was held, uh, people were actually invited to come and, and celebrate it. And, and astrologically, astronomically, you know, you're meant to, it was meant to be celebrated next year, but they thought it was more auspicious this year. So there was even a religious re- reason uh, why it could have been held uh, next year, it's a it's a festival that comes around every eighteen years. Uh, Kumela is 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 this this giant festival on the Ganges, isn't, isn't it? Where where sort of millions of people gather 
um, in a short space of time. That's right. They gather and they are. And what you do when you go uh, to the Kumela is take a dip in the river. So you wade into the river and you immerse yourself in the water of the Ganges because the Ganges is a sacred river in India and it washes away your sins and it's a very auspicious thing to do. So not only were people milling about, they were actually all milling about in a tiny stretch of river and they were actively um, encouraged to do this. Mm. And um, on the 3rd of May, the TPR in this state, that test positivity ratio that the WHO says should not rise above 5% is now 21.5% in this state. I'm glad that you brought up Trump because while, and I want to be very clear, I'm not comparing Trump to Modi. I'm not comparing the United States to India. There, there are many reasons that these two situations are very different, but watching India now and seeing, you know, seeing friends post mutual aid links and, oh, does anybody have oxygen? I'm trying to find oxygen for my friend's friend. It just reminds me so much of where we were through so much of 2020 with the frustration, right, of looking at a government that has abandoned you, abandoned its basic responsibility to take care of its people, has given people just the completely, um, as you say, just the completely wrong idea, wrong impression, and and left you to 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 try to create a society without this leadership, right, and to fend yeah. for to fend for yourselves. I, I, relatedly, what have you made of the international community's response to this COVID crisis in India? Well, it's been fulsome and and uh, helpful. Many countries have sent supplies, oxygen concentrators, oxygen supplies to India instantly. Even Bangladesh yesterday uh, sent um, several thousand doses of Remdesivir, uh, which is one of the medicines you need to treat COVID. So everybody has rallied around, and partly uh, for maybe a couple of reasons. One is that Again, we've learned that a pandemic is never really over unless all parts of the earth are rid of, of the virus. It's mm-hmm. it's too connected a world. If if a country as vast as India is is going through this kind of phase, no country is safe. Uh, the second thing is that India is important for uh, several countries. Just this week in, in Britain, the UK prime minister signed a trade deal with India uh, because the UK needs it in a post-Brexit environment. And so you cannot, you need bilateral ties. And in when you have bilateral ties with the country, you need to help your uh, allies when, when they need it. The whole issue of the waivers that you referred to uh, at the top of the program uh, from President Biden, mm-hmm. that's been one of those vexed issues that, of course, we uh, visited during the HIV crisis. And that's why India and South Africa and South Africa has played a very important role in in that inequality of intellectual transfers. In that move of international support for India and for vaccine manufacturing, this may be one of actually the few uh, good things that uh, come out of the pandemic. And just before we move on to the politics, what 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 is the latest on the the COVID surge in India? I mean, as we record this on Friday, um, th- there have been reports of yet another record number of new infections, four hundred and fourteen thousand in one day. Is is there any sense that the the latest surge is losing momentum, or that the authorities are getting it under control, or is it still completely running running rampant? I so wish I could say it was under control. I mean, the number of deaths yesterday was nearly 4,000. It was 3,915 deaths just yesterday. And the authorities uh, sadly are trying, but they're trying the wrong things. So 
one thing to understand about India, and you know, this will be important even for our next set of uh, issues, is that India is a federal structure with a central government in Delhi, Prime Minister Modi being its most prominent face. And then it has 29 states, uh, each of which has uh, uh, its own government. Health is a state subject, i.e. that, you know, the jurisdiction of the state government is, is, is what matters. And so state governments have had a certain degree of autonomy in how they manage uh, the pandemic in their particular state. And some states have been um, doing very well. Kerala, a small southern state, which many people have heard of simply because it, it was extraordinary in how it dealt. Uh, it has a better health infrastructure to start with. Uh, others are stepping up and doing well. Maharashtra is doing well. West Bengal has decided as soon as they won the elections, their first top priority and possibly only priority at this point was controlling the pandemic. Unfortunately, the central government has been more concerned about the negative reportage on how uh, the government has failed than actually dealing with the mistakes. So several meetings have been held with uh, all ambassadors to countries across the world by uh, the prime minister, with chief ministers. Uh, The substance of those meetings was how to get the messaging right, not about public communication on how to deal with the virus, but about uh, dealing with the negative stories and replacing them with positive ones. As many are beginning to note, that is not important. The positive stories will follow when there is a positive scenario. If good things happen, people will report that. But unfortunately, at the moment, the situation remains extremely dire. In fact, uh, the peak is expected in a couple of weeks' time. Goodness. You just referenced um, now that the elections in West Bengal are over, you know, the, the the government there will make fighting COVID its its top priority. And the rallies that we spoke about earlier that, that Modi and company continued to go to um, despite and, and hold despite the surging case numbers, um, in, in many cases, were also in West Bengal. For listeners who are not familiar with West Bengal, could you explain a bit about why the West Bengal elections were so important, um, other than the fact that it's you know, one of India's most populous states and the fate of literally millions of people was <laughs> depending on it. What we need to understand is the uh, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, that is the party of Prime Minister Narendra Modi that rules the central government and is in its second term of office. Their manifesto uh, has some key elements to it, right? And these key elements are not so much governance agendas, they're promises made of creating jobs and employment and, and, and development and so on, frankly, none of which has happened. But there, is, there are other set of promises which are very important about building a temple in Ayodhya, about creating an India that is free of the Congress. Now, the Congress is the historical party that is credited with winning India's independence from British colonialism, Uh, It has been in power for many years. And there is a sort of visceral enmity between uh, Narendra Modi and and, uh, the Congress. So he wants to see an India that is free of the Congress. He calls it the Congress, Congress Mukt Bharat. Now, West Bengal is an anomaly in this that the BJP has uh, never uh, won an election there. It's never really had a presence there until a few years ago. And it is, like you said, Emily, a big state. Uh, It sends many uh, members to the upper house of uh, the Indian parliament. 
So whoever uh, is in power in West Bengal also has a big um, influence in the upper house of parliament. So winning West Bengal is important for numbers, but it's also important for prestige because it uh, for uh, 34 years between 1977 and 2011 had uh, a left front government, a coalition of communist parties uh, in place, uh, seemingly invincible in those days, which the current prime minister of West Bengal, Mamata Banerjee, uh, unseated in 2011 in a very spirited campaign. Mamata Banerjee has also been one of, she's the only female chief minister of the 29 uh, that exist in India at the moment. And she's been a very vociferous critic of the prime minister. So toppling her from power became almost a personal crusade. The other thing to say by way of background about elections in India is uh, we've got to remember India's electorate is larger than any other by a distance. You, know, you probably have to add uh, the North American, European and Australian electorates together to make up the Indian electorate. It's really rather vast. West Bengal is the size of a large European country. So elections frequently are held in phases. So you have several polling days uh, when different districts of the state go to the polls. And this is usually done so that personnel of election officials can be moved from one part of the state to the other. So it's quite natural to do that. But it also means that you also provide security. So central forces are moved. So you provide security, polling votes and so on. Now, the West Bengal campaign that has just been concluded is the longest, the longest election, state election that has ever been held in the history of Indian elections. It was it was about 45 days, wasn't it? Yes, in eight phases. And was that because of COVID? No, contrary to that. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's worth saying that Tamil Nadu, another uh, southern state that went to a state in the south, West Bengal's in the east, Tamil Nadu has a very similar sized electorate to West Bengal. They had their entire election in one day, wow. uh, which was actually rather good uh, under the pandemic uh, conditions. Uh, whereas the only reason for West Bengal having such a long uh, drawn out uh, uh, election was to allow the prime minister and his party to campaign continuously for six weeks uh, between phases to maximize chances of winning. Interesting. And just, just before we get onto the campaign, to clarify for, for, for listeners trying to picture this in their heads, this is West Bengal is it's the state around Calcutta, isn't it? Immediately to the west of Bangladesh. That's is there true. anything you'd add just on the on the characteristics of the state uh, that it's worth knowing? Yes, I mean it's you know there's a saying that every Indian knows what West Bengal thinks today, uh, India thinks tomorrow. West Bengal is where British colonialism started. Uh, that's where the British first began. The East India Company set up shop there for the first time. And so it has had the longest, most sustained uh, relationship with the West. But it's also had, like I say, this very long communist period in which certain ways of doing politics and, and thinking about rights was put in place. And also, it is the birth of the Hindu Mahasabha, which is actually, it's the place of the birth. The Hindu Mahasabha is the antecedent of the Bharatiya Janata Party, which the Prime Minister is a part of. So it has had these elements of Hindu nationalism in West Bengal 
for over a century. So it's a very interesting mix of different elements of Indian politics all in one place. Right. And so what would it have meant for Narendra Modi's BJP to win in West Bengal? And and why do you think did they not manage that? Well, they wanted to win it, like I said, because it was almost a personal battle to topple the only uh, woman chief minister, but also the you know one of the fiercest critics uh, of the central government. It wanted to increase its footprint on India. The BJP wants all of India to be controlled by it, not just at the centre, but also every single state. And it hasn't been doing actually very well at state government elections for a few years now. Uh, so it's not able to replicate its um, national uh, success at uh, at the state level of the central government. Uh, it needed to, it wanted to increase its footprint on India. The BJP wants all of India to be controlled by it, not just at the centre, but also every single state. And it hasn't been doing actually very well at state government elections for a few years now. Uh, so it's not able to replicate its um, central, its national uh, success at uh, at the state level. And like I said, it wanted to control the legislature so it could send lots of uh, members to the upper house of parliament. It became a personal mission. It was evident mm-hmm. because of uh, the number of times the prime minister in the middle of the pandemic when cases were rising astronomically, uh, was rushing over to West Bengal for campaigns on the day of the highest number of deaths when it peaked in April. It was the day that he was boasting in front of a large crowd that he had never seen such a large crowd and how wonderful it was. This was personal. They abs- And they had made very uh, tall claims at the start, saying they were going to win over 200 of the 292 seats. This was going to be a pushover. Uh, There was a fairly uh, personalized campaign against Mamta Banerjee. And so there was a lot of hot air and bluster around the the campaign. They had kind of committed to have winning by a landslide. So they had to make it happen, which, of course, we know now did not happen at all. Right. So they say the BJP says, oh, we're going to win over 200 seats in the state assembly. And in fact, it was the TMC that won over 200 seats and the BJP won, what, 77 why was the TMC able to retain um, such commanding control of, of the state assembly? Okay, several factors. One is very much like Modi. In West Bengal, Mamta is an extremely popular figure. And their campaign was centered around projecting her as a daughter of the soil, uh, a, a Bengali who was going to look after the state. She has huge popularity. Unlike Modi, uh, she is um, she is uh, simple. She, you know, her public persona is simple. It's down to earth. It is in your face, volatile. She's she's a very spontaneous person, and she doesn't hide that. hasn't hidden that uh, through her political career. How would you how would you define her her politics and that of the TMCs ideologically? I mean, would it be right to describe them as being on the left, or is this just more a a centrist alternative to the BJP? You know, it's, one of the difficult questions with Trinamul is is to actually identify what exactly they stand for ideologically. They're not left in the way that uh, the communist parties were left. They were fighting that. But one thing that Trinamul did, TMC did, uh, which really was one of the important factors for their win, was they concentrated on welfare. 
in a big way. Mm -hmm. And welfare schemes of different sorts, especially welfare schemes targeted uh, towards women and young girls. So two of their schemes, which were most popular, put money directly into the accounts of girls who completed school. And another one, uh, if they waited till they were 18, they got married after that. So there was incentivization of women's empowerment, but uh, with real money that was given to women, which empowered women, but also empowered families. And this has been hugely successful. So it is welfarist in that. It, and if you want to put that in the left corner, then so be it. I don't think they would identify it as that, but it, it's very much a, a welfare-driven uh, governance agenda. And just, just I know Emily has a couple more questions, I think, but just before that, just to understand how the TMC fits over into the overall picture of the Indian opposition, this is a party that, am I right in saying, split from the Congress party and operates, is it purely in West Bengal? And I suppose, relatedly, how much can we extrapolate its success onto the broader Indian opposition? Or is this just a very specific the West Bengal a phenomenon tied up with the personality of Banerjee? It is a West Bengal party. It is very tied to Mamta Banerjee. Its success, though, has kind of, it's outpaced its uh, uh, localised presence in West Bengal simply because Mamta Banerjee has now emerged as a chief minister who took on the full machinery and might of the BJP. I mean, they were in full-on election mode, and this is something the BJP does uh, with great energy and a lot of resources, uh, disproportionate amount of resources, and she beat them, and she beat them hollow. So her status and stature amongst other opposition parties is very high. Now, she had broken away from the Congress, but she set up her own party, and so the Congress, the old Congress in West Bengal is completely decimated. In fact, the Congress and the left front of, uh, of the communists had allied in this election and they did not win a single seat. So Trinamool is without doubt the only uh, non-BJP entity uh, still standing. And there are in India some other regional, there are several regional parties like this uh, across in, in different states who are confined to those uh, states in, in particular, including the one that won in uh, uh, Tamil Nadu, one of the other states I mentioned that went to the polls. But together, Indian politics has seen uh, coalition governments of different regional parties coming together to form a national government that is not at all unheard of. It's been done. So the possibility of some sort of coalition of opposition parties taking on the BJP, because the advantage there is they're not fighting each other in any of the elections. They're fighting elections in their own states. But at the national level, they can have uh, some sort of seat sharing uh, arrangement uh, possible. Mm -hmm. If I may, I, I just wanted to add two or three other factors that mm -hmm. can be attributed to the West Bengal uh, win of, of the Trinamool. Um, I mentioned the, the major factor, uh, welfare schemes, that uh, that seems to have gone down extremely well and it has been rewarded. Uh, so the development agenda uh, over any other has triumphed. The second thing which, which is really interesting is that you know, West Bengal sees one of the highest turnout of women in any elections. This year, 84% of women voters turned out. And most of them seem to have voted for uh, uh, Banerjee, mm. for Mamta Banerjee, uh, for TMC. Uh, this 
has made analysts sit up and think, you know, we've talked about vote bank politics, we've talked about the minority vote, India is such a diverse country. So now this block of votes for, for coming from women for one particular party has become a really uh, important factor to keep in mind because clearly uh, how women vote can swing an entire election. And that so that's been a key takeaway from it all. Mm. The third thing to note is that this long drawn out election that we were talking about over eight phases, today's uh, analysis and, and data from CSDS, Lokniti, uh, who did various uh, surveys, including a post poll survey, shows that um, the BJP actually did very badly out of this long drawn out campaign. They had thought they would do well. To start with, only one in four voters decided at the last minute who to vote for. But of these quarter number of voters who voted, uh, made up their mind at the last minute, 54% of them voted for TMC rather than the BJP, only 33%. So all that long drawn out campaigning did not really help the BJP. The second thing which may have affected the women's vote, and a number of observers have, have commented on this, is the very personal bullying style of the Prime Minister and the Home Minister, Amit Shah, who is their main election manager, uh, of uh, leering, catcalling mm. uh, this lone chief minister. And that style seemed to have uh, gone down very badly with the electorate, where people thought this was simply not on. And this was not just women. A number of men thought this was no way of treating a politician, in fact, any woman in this manner uh, during a campaign. Finally, just before our, our listener question, uh, one debate that I've heard around this is whether this is whether this is really a victory in that, yes, yes, Trinamool will remain in power in the state, but the BJP is now the main opposition. And you know that that in and of itself is a loss. How how do you say, see this? Was this a I guess a real or a bittersweet um, victory for the TMC? It's a very real victory. It's a landslide victory. It is huge. It's proved that the one thing you know the BJP is not known for much governance. The BJP is mostly known for winning elections, and they put everything in it, and they lost, and it, and they lost very badly. So you know that that is the main message of this election. But of course, like you say, the BJP, which was a non-presence just a few years ago, now has over 70 seats in the local assembly. But that's a big footprint for a party that, that was nowhere a few years ago. So yes, they're going to be there. They're the main opposition party. And unfortunately, in the way that the central government works, we can already begin to see today's headlines show Banerjee having to write to the prime minister. She's written a letter to him. Um, asking for oxygen supplies for the state. Now, if we are going to see in a state of what can only be described as personal peak, if the prime minister having lost hands down to Mamta Banerjee decides to withhold oxygen supplies and medicines to the state of West Bengal, uh, that's going to be very bad for the people who live in that state. And it's not going to go down well for him either. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Hold up. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, that brings us to a segment that we like to call... You Ask Us. So our question, our listener question this week, actually takes the conversation forward a bit. Uh, and asks, what does the West Bengal election result mean for 2024? And this is a, a reference to the next Indian general election, which has to take place by by May of that year, so within the next three years. Makulika, why don't you um, uh, sort of have a go at that? It'd be really interesting to hear what you think this actually means for the chances of Modi somehow being defeated at the next election, but also just what it means for the, the choice before the Indian electorate when that election comes around. Sure. I mean, 2024 seems a very long way away, but fortunately, India has, you know, three tiers of democracy. So we've been talking about the second tier uh, so far, the sort of state level um, uh, elections. But there is an even more local tier, the panchayat and municipal elections, which is local governance bodies. Now, contrary to uh, uh, Western trends, uh, turnouts in these very local elections are actually higher than in national elections. So how people vote at the local level begins to give you a sense of uh, how of where the public mood is. Uh, people, of course, vote very differently at local elections than they do at the national elections. But we should, in the run-up to 2024, be looking at these very local panchayat elections and looking at um, the state elections as well as what happens in the national elections. Now, we talked briefly about what would happen in whether you could get the formation of an anti-BJP front through a coalition of different regional parties that have been immensely successful in defeating the BJP in their on their home turf. That is a distinct possibility. Mamta Banerjee's win has proved that the BJP can be taken on and defeated. Next year, the most populous state of India, uh, Uttar Pradesh, is going to the polls. Now, whoever wins the UP elections is likely to win the national elections that comes after it. That has been the trend with the national parties, which is why the BJP had put uh, a huge amount of effort into winning UP in the first place. UP is uh, ruled, its chief minister is a hand-picked person by uh, Prime Minister Modi, and uh, the battle is very uh, strongly going to be contested next year to retain UP. But in UP, the first indications of where the public mood may be got from 
the vast number of panchayat elections, those local elections I mentioned, uh, that were also held last month. Sadly, actually, one of the worst stories of the pandemic comes from these panchayat elections, which could have been very easily postponed, but they weren't. Instead, they pushed through, held the elections, and, and on election duty, several school teachers were forced to go on election duty. Over 700 of them have died of COVID because of the election duty that were forced to do, among them a woman who was eight months pregnant. So this is not a good picture by any means. This is absolutely awful. But in these panchayat elections, when they were held, the BJP has lost quite summarily. And the main party that has won and formed governments in UP, the Samajwadi Party, has done very well, as indeed have others. So that begins to give us a sense of, A, how people feel about who they want in power in at the local level, but also the public confidence in political parties actually delivering basic things like health and mm-hmm. education. Um, and that, that might set the stage for how Bihar votes next year, and then how Gujarat, Prime Minister Modi's own state, where he was chief minister, may vote uh, the year. But having said all of this, just to conclude that, it has to be said that Prime Minister Modi's personal popularity ratings have been always extremely high, higher than any other global leader anywhere in the world. But for the first time, we are seeing a very sharp decline uh, in his approval ratings. They've fallen from 74% to 65% between the end of March and May. And his disapproval ratings have risen from 20% to 29%. This is the morning consult uh, US data companies uh, results that were released this week. Just just one follow-up. It sounds like, I mean, at the very beginning of this, we spoke about the Congress party, the, the party that long governed over India and is sort of the, tr- the, the main national opposition to the BJP. It just seems like they're nowhere in these in these various state elections. I, where, how do they fit in? Sadly, they don't fit in. They don't seem to have the capacity to win elections, even in states like Assam mm-hmm. or Puducherry, where they, they could have won. They seem to lack the wherewithal to do it. In Kerala, where the Congress-led alliance has always alternated with the left-front alliance in forming governments uh, for as long as we can remember, for the first time, uh, that didn't happen. And the incumbent left-front government was voted back into power. Rahul Gandhi himself campaigned very actively in Kerala. So the, yes, the Congress seems to be completely unable to win any elections and has lost its force. It's been reduced to a provincial party, really, even though it continues to have a national footprint uh, in the country. Rahul Gandhi as an individual, has is, it's an interesting story. He's clearly one who, who hasn't, as president of the Congress, seen the Congress to victory in elections. And yet his personal credibility on the COVID issue has been really quite remarkable because he's been ahead of the curve for over 12 months, warning of what is to come, what they should be watching out for, what the vaccination strategy should be, thinking, looking at the evidence, coming up with recommendations, ignored at every stage, but he's he's emerged as this very prescient voice on COVID. It will be interesting to see whether the dip in Modi's support that you just mentioned then translates into into some sort of um, reward for that foresight in the in the near future. Definitely one to watch. It is now time for our final section in which we say what we'll be watching in the week ahead. Um, 
Mukulika, you are our guest, so you can go first. Well, I'll be watching India, of course, very closely. But here where I live in the UK, the country voted yesterday in local elections uh, across the board. And two interesting trends and one interesting, important result will be how Scotland votes, because if they vote for the S&P, it may have serious repercussions for the state of the union in the United Kingdom. And that's going to affect everyone here. The other interesting early trend that is emerging is the rise of the Green Party at the expense of Labour votes, that a number of Labour voters are voting for Green in the run-up to uh, COP26 this year to be held in the United Kingdom. This is an interesting development and may have repercussions for the future. Next week, I'll be paying attention to a meeting of the cabinet here in Berlin, the German cabinet, which will be discussing a proposal to make Germany's climate goals more ambitious. We were talking recently about the rise of the Green Party here ahead of the federal election in September. It's something I've been watching closely and writing about. And following uh, a ruling by Germany's constitutional court that the country had, country's climate goals were not ambitious enough, a proposal has been brought by the, um, the finance and the environment ministers here to up Germany's ambitions, so to try to go for 65% uh, emissions reductions by 2030 and also to achieve carbon neutrality by 2045 rather than 2050. And they seem to have caught the zeitgeist. There's certainly a sense now that Germany needs to be upping its game on, on climate, as indeed other countries have been doing in recent months ahead of the COP26 summit. And that will be discussed at the, at the German federal cabinet next weekend. It's expected to be approved there. So that's, I think, going to be a significant moment, both for Germany, but also for the, the broader question of climate policy. Emily, what will you be looking ahead to? Well, there are rumors and reports that Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin will have a summit of sorts or a meeting in June. And so um, similarly, there are reports that they're trying to pick the exact date and the how difficult it is to pick a location that works for both men. So I will be watching how that develops and whether or not we will have another uh, US-Russia summit. I was at the Helsinki summit in 2018, uh, in which Putin handed Trump a soccer ball and he threw it at his wife. So I uh, imagine that this will go differently, but uh, look forward to learning more about where and whether and how it will take place. Well, I'd like to round off this episode by saying a big thank you to Makulika Banerjee of the London School of Economics for a really fascinating discussion about um, a country that has been in the headlines a lot recently, but also some of the, the trends and developments going on um, that are less widely covered in the, the international press. I think really important to pay attention to the West Bengal election. We worked out it's the second biggest election this year after the Mexican legislative election. So just going to show how vast are the numbers involved in, in Indian democracy. Thank you very much, Mukulika, for joining us. You're welcome. If you have enjoyed this episode of The World Review, please like, subscribe, leave a review, tell your mortal enemies about how good it is. And you can also subscribe to the free newsletter uh, component of this of the World Review experience at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and until next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.